Uh, very good morning to you. I just want to say hello to those people around the corner there. I may not be able to get to you and lean over there while I'm preaching, but I do see you. Oh, it's great to be, it's great to be together. It really is. Never underestimate what the Lord is doing right now. When we ask him to come, he comes. When we call upon his mighty name, he hears our voice. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke 15. We are going to carry on the series of Living Out Loud And as we look at the life of Jesus together to see what, if anything, we might glean from him about how we as followers of Jesus live and share God's love to the very many people we all meet every week in the course of our day-to-day lives, at our workplaces, at the school gate, at the gym, on the train, on the tube, or the buses, wherever we find ourselves. Before we start, let's just pray. Lord, we are in awe of you. We're in awe of who you are and your love is so pure and perfect. Fill us this day and Lord, as you are, as we are gathered here, would you come and bless our world? Would you come and be with all of us, Lord, those that are hidden, those who feel like they're not seen. Come, Lord, we need you in our land, we need you in our world. For you, your love is perfect, and there is none other like you. Amen. Let's take a look at Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered, gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, if you were here last week, we were looking at the story of Zacchaeus. And this week, some of the themes that emerge from our reflections on Jesus' meeting with Zacchaeus kind of crop up again. 
In Luke 15, we find Jesus in a situation with a pretty mixed group of people, all of whom are gathered in conversation with him. Have a look at verse 1 to 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Clearly, Jesus' reputation has gone before him, as there are several tax collectors, men like Zacchaeus, and others who gathered around to listen to him. And as we see from the Gospels, these were often the people who liked to crowd around Jesus. Because Jesus was a very different kind of preacher to the ones they were used to. Unlike other rabbis and teachers of the day, Jesus clearly believed in spending his time in the company of such people rather than keeping himself separate as so many of the religious leaders did. And as we saw from his encounter with Zacchaeus from last week, Jesus always, always welcomes all kinds of people gladly, and in turn, they enjoyed being with him. And even this idea might seem strange to some of us. It can be so easy to think of holiness as being purity of life that's marked by separation from who, what might be called worldly people. Usually we associate, associate holiness with the things like a deep knowledge of God's word and condemnation, both of obvious sin and those who do it. But Jesus was so different. He was so different. We've already seen that Jesus didn't keep himself separate from people, nor did he turn people away. Jesus doesn't seem to condemn or avoid people. Rather, he was a teacher who spoke words of comfort and grace. A teacher who showed such respect, honor, and love that many people responded by gladly choosing to turn away from their sin, which is just what happened with Zacchaeus. Grace and mercy, as opposed to condemnation, are usually far more effective ways to deepen love and devotion. And a profound love for Christ, more often than not, is much greater incentive to cause us to change our ways and bring lasting and true repentance. Certainly much more than any sermon or any program for straightening out our lives. Now on this particular day, the Pharisees and the scribes were there, along with the tax collectors and the sinners. And when the Bible talks about the scribes, it just means that they were teachers of the Old Testament scriptures, and particularly teachers of the law of Moses. The Pharisee refers to those who saw themselves as devoted to the service of God and committed to living lives of obedience to the law, a kind of super-moral minority who set themselves up as the leaders of the faithful, God-fearing Israelites of the time. On this occasion, 
The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are once again criticizing Jesus for the company he keeps. We don't know the place or the situation this is all taking place. Maybe it's a casual meal in some public setting since there is criticism of Jesus receiving sinners and eating with them. And as we saw last week, going into people's homes and eating was widely understood to mean personal and intimate fellowship. The Pharisees see all of this hanging out that Jesus does and mutter their judgment, both at the sinners and at Jesus. And then Jesus tells three parables, three parables that go together and build on each other until the final climax. And each one of them addresses both groups, the tax collectors and sinners, and the scribes and the Pharisees. And as we explore the first two parables today, let's be asking ourselves, what are the parables communicating? Are they operating on different levels? Does Jesus build his message over each of them? Or how are these very diverse people challenged by them? Parable one the lost sheep, the good shepherd. Luke 15, three to seven. Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be no more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus begins by telling a simple story about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep one of which has wandered away. Now, to better understand the story, we need to think about the, the way herds were grazed in the part of the world at that time. The shepherd would take them out in the morning and he wouldn't put them into a field surrounded by a fed, fence or um, hedge, but rather graze them in the open countryside. But in the open grazing setting, it was really, really easy to let a sheep wander away from the care of the shepherd. And that's what happens in the story Jesus tells. And so the shepherd is faced with a dilemma. Will he stay with the 99 sheep safely grazing in the open fields, or will he search the one that is missing? And of course he goes to find the lost sheep until he returns with it on his shoulders. Clearly, it had wandered some distance as it's too tired to get back on its own. And on his return, the shepherd is so full of joy that he throws a party for his friends and neighbors to celebrate finding his lost sheep. And then Jesus then explains that this is exactly what happens in heaven every time someone comes to faith. And it's very simple, but it's a very, very powerful story a story that has generated thousands of paintings 
thousands of hymns and poems. And like any good parable, it's a story that captures our hearts and our imaginations. It challenges our attitudes and our behavior by showing us how we should treat others. It reveals to us the nature of God's kingdom, a kingdom that is devoted to finding those who are lost and that delights in celebration. It teaches us about Jesus, who is the Good Shepherd. And again, maybe it's helpful to reflect on the way the shepherd has been depicted by artists over the years. Earlier portrayals of this story are very different from the more recent, fairly sweet portrayals of this story. In the first century of the church, paintings depict the sheep as full-grown and the shepherd as weary and bowed down by the weight of the heavy animal over his shoulders, exhausted from carrying it the long distance home. He is dirty, blood-stained and stumbling. The story was always seen to be describing the cost to the shepherd of bringing home his lost sheep. The early church saw the cross in this parable, not a pleasant young man with brown wavy hair effortlessly carrying a little lamb. Another thing we should note about this first parable is that Jesus makes it very, very easy for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to hear it. Jesus almost lulls them into a full sense of security so they will keep on listening. And you can be pretty sure that the Pharisees see themselves as the 99 righteous ones who don't need to repent. You kind of sense their self-righteousness as they listen. I don't need to repent. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. I'm not an adulterer or a robber. I don't extort people like these tax collectors and like these wretched sinners. My, my life is pretty much together. In addition, the Pharisees have been very upset by the thought of the kingdom of heaven would be filled with more rejoicing of the presence of one of these sinners than over them. Chances are they wouldn't like the emphasis on a celebration in heaven over the repenting sinner, nor would they warm to the notion that God goes out of his way to seek and to find those who are lost. Meanwhile, the tax collectors and sinners would have heard the story and rejoiced that Jesus cares for them and is eager to find them, they would be amazed that there will actually be a party in heaven for them. For they think that they are not even worthy to lift their eyes up to heaven. And the second parable, the lost coin. And then Jesus goes on to tell his second parable. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. 
I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. To understand this second parable, we need to try to imagine a typical house at the time of Jesus. A typical house would probably have been built of stone with many cracks and gaps into which a coin could easily slip. And the house Jesus mentions belongs to an ordinary woman who truly values her money. The coin would have been worth a day's wages, and so it was a substantial loss. And to find the missing coin, she lit a lamp, sweeps the house and searches carefully, either stooped down to the floor on her hands and knees, shining her lamp into every nook and cranny. But then on finding it, she calls her friends to celebrate with her. As with the first parable, Jesus adds the commentary that God and his angels rejoice whenever a single person comes to faith. Again, the parable is to be heard or read at several levels. It's a captivating story. It reminds us to gladly count the cost of finding what has been lost and to rejoice over anyone comes to faith. It reaffirms the merciful and the celebratory nature of the kingdom of God. And it shows Christ delighting in taking time and effort to search for those who are outcasts. So how do those who are listening hear this story? Well, the tax collectors would again hear it with joy, for it assures them once more that God will go to great lengths to seek and find each one of them. For these, the second parable would be heard much like the first and would have been a particular comfort to any woman present. You can imagine them saying, no teacher has ever spoken to us or about us like this. Have you ever heard of a Pharisee or a scribe who used a woman to tell a story about God's love? But again, Jesus' encouraging words come with a challenge and a repentance, to repentance. Both, but in both stories, the challenge is a minor theme compared to the major emphasis on God's love his joyful willingness to count the cost of searching for those who are lost and the heavenly party he holds to celebrate. You can imagine their hearts leaping for joy at the thought of the angels celebrating about them being invited to a party in heaven. These would have been exciting and comforting new teachings for those listening to Jesus. But what of the Pharisees and teachers of the law? There's not much comfort in, in for them. In fact, they would most likely have been troubled by it. They are being challenged to shift their thinking. That in God's kingdom, both now and for the future, those present will be rejoicing over the presence of people like the outcasts around them. Those who will be honoured in heaven are the very people they have despised their whole lives. They would slowly begin to realise that Jesus 
is explicitly condemning the attitude toward those in the story. And the implication of it all is that they are perhaps not, after all, righteous. These parables require them to change. Their hearts need to come to repentance as well. And it's not just the sinners who need to repent. Another major shock for them would have been that a woman is at the center of the story. There would have been no room in their theology for God to be represented by a woman. Women were not seen as being moral or spiritual enough to be taught the law or to become disciples. A woman's testimony couldn't be used in court as trustworthy, so the idea of a woman being used to reveal a truth about God's love would have been unthinkable to them. Their response would be, here he is telling a story with a housewife as the model to teach about the character of God, blasphemous. Both of these parables challenge each group of hearers. The tax collectors and sinners are not only comforted by this story, they are challenged to come to faith. But so too the Pharisees and the teachers of the law need to change their view of God's love, of God's kingdom, of women and of Jesus. And it is these first two parables that prepare the way for the third and final parable, which will cut to all their hearts. One of the most striking things about Jesus, unlike the religious leaders, is that he never seems to look at people as being just one thing or just having one characteristics as a tax collector or a sinner. Jesus treats each person he meets with dignity and respect, irrespective of whatever shame they may carry. Perhaps one of the most important lessons we can learn from Jesus is this, to see beyond the exterior of a person, especially beyond their sin, and to treat them with honor and with love. Jesus was able to see the human dignity of each person he encountered, even where the dignity was expressed in a very different culture from than his own culture as a Jew, and even where that dignity was deeply damaged by moral failure. Jesus encounters with those who were other, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the tax collectors and sinners are a model and a challenge to each of us today. And we are to look beyond the outside of a person, past the surface of theological, racial, religious, economic, cultural, gender, and educational differences, and most of all, past the presence in people's lives of behaviors, addictions, and differing beliefs. Can we see through such differences to each person's abiding glory as a bearer of God's image, 
throughout the Gospels, we see so many occasions when Jesus shows respect, gentleness, and grace to unbelievers. All people are, as John Calvin put it, like ruined statues on which we can still trace the outlines of their former glory. J.R.R. Tolkien says, describes us as having still the rags of the lordship that once was ours and us minting a blurred image of a distant king. Francis Schaeffer said that we are glorious ruins. Our task then surely, as we learn to live out loud, is to see what is beautiful and true. The outlines, the lordship, the blurred image, and the glory still present in the lives of those around us as we love and honour and respect one another as Jesus did and allow the beautiful Spirit of God to bring about the change that he desires for each one of us, so that each one and every one of us are being transformed into the likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen.